Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. We're here today with Dr. Cody Chastain from the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Department of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. And our focus is on understanding how the potential adverse effects of some of the newer HIV medications can impact clinical practice. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences and Merck & Company. Learning objectives for this audio program include describe the current evidence associating the use of dolutegravir in pregnancy with an increased rate of neural tube defects, and compare the association between darunavir and cardiovascular events with the competing benefits and possible risks of dolutegravir. Dr. Chastain has disclosed that he has received grant and or research support paid to his institution from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. He has also indicated that he will not be referencing the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in his presentation. Dr. Chastain, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for this opportunity. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed the recent post-marketing surveillance reports that identified previously unrecognized adverse events associated with some of the newer HIV medications. What I'd like to do today is revisit some of that information from a clinical perspective. So let me ask you to start us out, if you would please, Doctor, with a patient scenario. A 25-year-old woman with a past medical history of HIV is well-controlled on antiretroviral therapy, including a single-tablet regimen of dolutegravir, abacavir, and lamivudine. She recently heard from a peer that her current medication regimen may cause birth defects. She and her current partner have discussed starting a family, and she states that she is considering stopping her antiretroviral therapy altogether to reduce the risk of birth defects. This patient is on dolutegravir, abacavir, and lamivudine. Have birth defects been associated with this regimen, and, and if they have, what are they? What does the evidence say, doctor? Birth defects are a concern for all medication use in women who may become pregnant. As most medications, including HIV medications, are not initially evaluated in trials prior to FDA approval, providers often rely on animal models and post-marketing monitoring to assess risk in pregnancy. Recent observations from the Botswana-Harvard AIDS Institute partnership have identified a higher rate of neural tube defects than anticipated in HIV-infected women taking dolutegravir. As of May 1, 2018, 89,064 births have been included in surveillance, with 86 neural tube defects identified. This is about 0.1% of all births in this cohort. Among 426 women with dolutegravir exposure at time of conception, four neural tube defects were observed. This is nearly 1% of this group. What types of neural tube defects were found? These cases included neural tube defects such as anencephaly, encephalocele, anencephaly, and myelomeningocele. The rate of neural tube defects in these women taking dolutegravir, how does that compare to HIV-infected women who are on regimens that don't include dolutegravir? Within this cohort, the rate of neural tube defects among HIV-positive women taking non-dolutegravir antiretroviral therapy at conception, including efavirenz, was lower than those taking dolutegravir. The rate of neural tube defects in this group was much closer to the 0.1% observed in the overall Botswana cohorts. Are there other possible explanations for these neural tube defects, uh, aside from these women taking dolutegravir? A 
baseline rate of neural tube defects is expected in the general population. This may or may not account for some of the neural tube defects observed. It is important to note that prenatal folate supplementation was not taken by the four mothers whose children had neural tube defects and were taking dolutegravir at the time of conception. And folate supplementation is important. Why? Traditionally, folate supplementation is recommended as part of prenatal care to reduce the risk of neural tube defects. I see. So nothing else? No other risk factors were identified in this cohort. It is possible that there are risks within the Botswana cohort that are not shared in other care environments. So the percentage is high, but the actual number of birth defects is low. What's the plan for further evaluation? An expanded observational analysis is anticipated to confirm or refute this data signal in light of the small number of events to date. In the meantime, the Food and Drug Administration distributed a safety alert on May 18, 2018 to health professionals regarding the potential risk of neural tube defects associated with dolutegravir. Additional cohort analyses may need to be performed to confirm or refute these findings in populations other than that observed in Botswana. So, coming back to our patient, her friend told her that the dolutegravir she's taking may cause birth defects. How would you advise this young woman? First, I would emphasize the benefits of continued antiretroviral therapy to this patient, both for her own health as well as the health of her unborn child. Continued antiretroviral therapy may reduce complications related to HIV as well as to reduce the risk of vertical transmission of HIV. Second, I would discuss what we know and what we don't know about the possible association between dolutegravir taken at the time of conception and subsequent neural tube defects. Third, as the patient is not currently pregnant, I would discuss the benefits and risks of switching her antiretroviral therapy to another regimen with more safety data in pregnancy. A possible regimen may include a dual nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor backbone, such as tenofovir emtricitabine in combination with a protease inhibitor. Finally, I would encourage appropriate prenatal care, including prenatal vitamins and folate supplementation, should she consider or plan for pregnancy. Ultimately, I think it is important to share decision-making with the patient regarding her plan for HIV care, as well as continued antiretroviral therapy. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Cody Chastain from the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in just a moment. You've been listening to a Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine eHIV Review podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. eHIV Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with HIV and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, focuses that expert perspective on translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for eHIV Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about eHIV Review, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. And one more thing. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found the information useful, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that others can find it as well. Thank you.
Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Cody Chastain from the Vanderbilt University Medical Center about how post-marketing data has identified potential adverse effects from some of the newer HIV medications and what that information can mean to clinical practice. So to continue in that vein, uh, let me ask if you would please, doctor, to bring us another patient scenario. A 55-year-old man with a past medical history of HIV, well-controlled on emtricitabine, tenofovir alafenamide, and ritonavir-boosted darunavir, returns to clinic for follow-up. On review of his medical history, he has hypertension that is well-controlled on lisinopril, he has dyslipidemia, currently treated with atorvastatin, and he does smoke tobacco. After review of his medical record and a physical exam, you calculate his cardiovascular risk and note that his 10-year risk of a cardiovascular event is greater than 10%. Uh, First thing, let's talk about his CVD risk. There are many factors that may contribute to cardiovascular disease risk, including age, sex, family history, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and tobacco use. What about his ART regimen? HIV and certain antiretroviral therapies have been identified as important risk for cardiovascular disease as well. Previously, older protease inhibitors have been associated with cardiovascular disease as well as dyslipidemia. The data collection on adverse events of anti-HIV drugs, the quote DAD study, draws from 11 prospective cohorts in Australia, Europe, and the United States. It is an important study to assist in evaluating antiretroviral therapy as well as effects on HIV and other comorbidities. Investigators recently evaluated the association between newer protease inhibitors and cardiovascular disease. In this study, cardiovascular disease was defined as myocardial infarction, stroke, sudden cardiac death, or invasive cardiovascular procedures such as coronary bypass, angiography, and carotid endarterectomy. This patient is on emtricitabine, TAF, and ritonavir-boosted darunavir. What did the DAD study report about CVD risk with those agents? During a median of nearly seven years of follow-up, 1,157 people living with HIV had a cardiovascular event. Individuals exposed to ritonavir-boosted darunavir for more than six years had nearly three times as many cardiac events as those not exposed to ritonavir-boosted darunavir. In comparison, ritonavir-boosted adizanavir was not associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. The authors of the study noted that among individuals with a high risk of cardiovascular disease, which they defined as an absolute five-year cardiovascular risk of 10%, the absolute risk increase of cardiovascular disease with ritonavir-boosted darunavir was nearly 16%. This equates to a number needed to harm of about 15. While ritonavir-boosted darunavir was associated with cardiovascular disease, adjusting for dyslipidemia did not modify this association. This may suggest a different mechanism linking darunavir to cardiovascular disease. So switching the darunavir to something else, would that reduce the CVD risk? If there are concerns about the impact of darunavir on cardiovascular disease, it is natural to wonder whether transitioning to an alternative therapy may be helpful in reducing this risk. In the European Network for AIDS Treatment 022 study, Patients living with HIV treated with a protease inhibitor-based regimen who were virologically suppressed and who were either at least 50 years old or older, or with a Framingham score greater or equal to 10%, were randomized to immediately switching to a dolutegravir-based regimen 
or continuing their current protease inhibitor-based regimen for 48 weeks before switching to a dolutegravir-based regimen. This group was defined as the so-called delayed switch arm of the study. 415 patients were randomized, with 205 in the immediate switch arm and 210 in the delayed switch arm. HIV virologic control was maintained in both arms of the study. Improvements were noted among all lipid fractions in both study arms once switched to dolutegravir, including total cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein, non-high-density lipoprotein, and triglyceride profile. While this study showed that switching from protease inhibitors to dolutegravir can improve lipid profiles while maintaining HIV virologic suppression, further study is necessary to determine whether these changes translate to actual improved cardiovascular health outcomes. What are the chances that a change to dolutegravir might negatively impact this patient's metabolic health? What does the evidence say? Dyslipidemia is not the only part of metabolic health. It is plausible that dolutegravir has other metabolic effects that have yet to be measured. In a recent retrospective cohort study, investigators evaluated weight gain among patients on tenofovir, emtricitabine, and efavirenz, who either continued their regimen, this was approximately 325 patients, switched from efavirenz to an integrase strand transfer inhibitor-based regimen, about 134 patients, or switched from efavirenz to a protease inhibitor-based regimen, about 36 patients or so. In this study, patients switched to an integrase inhibitor-based regimen gained significantly more weight. Patients switched to an integrase inhibitor-based regimen gained about 2 kilograms more than those who continued tenofovir, emtricitabine, and efavirenz, or for those who were switched to a protease inhibitor-based regimen. Among integrase inhibitor-based regimens, patients treated with dolutegravir, abacavir, and lamivudine gained significantly more weight, about 4 kilograms, than those who continued tenofovir, emtricitabine, and efavirenz. Patients treated with other integrase inhibitor-based regimens, not including dolutegravir, gained about 2 kilograms more than those who continued tenofovir, emtricitabine, and efavirenz. Additional larger studies to assess weight gain, as well as cardiometabolic factors, were proposed by investigators in this study to further assess this observation. So switching to dolutegravir would likely improve this patient's lipid profile, but would also likely engender weight gain. Are there other adverse effects associated with dolutegravir that clinicians should be considering? Cardiovascular disease and adverse effects related to it are not the only considerations when prescribing antiretroviral therapy in HIV-infected patients who may have other comorbidities. While initial randomized controlled studies of dolutegravir revealed an excellent safety profile with a low rate of discontinuation, subsequent cohort studies have suggested a higher rate of drug discontinuation as well as neuropsychiatric adverse effects. In a recent retrospective cohort analysis, investigators reviewed two large German clinics between 2007 and 2016. Patients treated with integrase strand transfer inhibitors were identified, and the rate of and reason for drug discontinuation were identified. Among 1,704 eligible patients, the discontinuation rate for dolutegravir was 7.6% due to any adverse effect and 5.6% due to neuropsychiatric adverse effects. 
In comparison, the discontinuation rate for elvitegravir and raltegravir were 0.7% and 1.9% respectively due to neuropsychiatric effects. Neuropsychiatric adverse effects were defined as insomnia, sleep disturbances, dizziness, nervousness, restlessness, depression, poor concentration, slow thinking, and pain or paresthesia without another known etiology. Neuropsychiatric adverse effects leading to dolutegravir discontinuation were more common among women as well as among patients older than 60 years old. Uh, This is all a lot of information to convey. How would you boil it down into advice for this patient? First, I would highlight that there are emerging data about the benefits and risks of newer antiretroviral therapies, particularly darunavir and dolutegravir. I would also discuss other antiretroviral options that exist, such as single-tablet regimens that include ropivirine and elvitegravir. I would emphasize that both darunavir and integrase inhibitors have been found to be effective for HIV virologic control. Furthermore, switching from darunavir to integrase inhibitors, such as dolutegravir, has been found to be effective in maintaining viral suppression. I would then discuss what is known about cardiovascular disease risk associated with darunavir and contrast that with the emerging benefit and risk profile of integrase strand transfer inhibitors, particularly dolutegravir. In this situation, it is critical to counsel and partner with the patient in shared decision-making regarding his antiretroviral therapy. Thank you for today's cases and discussion, Dr. Chastain. One more question for you, and it's future-oriented. What needs to happen for clinicians to better minimize or, or even avoid the adverse effects associated with antiretroviral therapies? Further data is necessary to better define adverse effects of modern antiretroviral therapy, including the association between dolutegravir and neural tube defects, the mechanism of darunavir's impact on cardiovascular disease, as well as dolutegravir's multiple effects on patient outcomes and wellness. Additional study of these and other agents may better define optimal approaches within each individual patient population. While antiretroviral therapy is better than ever, select populations may continue to benefit from continued drug research as well as development. Thank you for sharing your insights, Dr. Chastain. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways as they relate to our learning objectives. So to begin... The current evidence associating the use of dolutegravir in pregnancy with an increased rate of neural tube defects. Doctor? Recent observations from the Botswana-Harvard AIDS Institute partnership identified a higher rate of neural tube defects than anticipated in HIV-infected women taking dolutegravir. As of May 1, 2018, 89,064 births had been included in surveillance with 86 neural tube defects identified. This is about 0.1% of all births in the cohort. Among 426 women with dolutegravir exposure at the time of conception, four neural tube defects were observed, which is nearly 1% of the group. An expanded observational analysis is anticipated to confirm or refute this data signal. But in the meantime, the Food and Drug Administration distributed a safety alert on May 18, 2018 to health professionals regarding the potential risk of neural tube defects associated with dolutegravir. I recommend that providers treating HIV-infected women who may become pregnant emphasize the benefits of antiretroviral therapy while also disclosing the potential risk of neural tube defects when taking dolutegravir. 
providers should review updated data as it becomes available to inform prescribing practices. And our other learning objective, comparing the association between darunavir and cardiovascular events with the competing benefits and possible risks of dalutegravir. In the DAD cohort, darunavir was associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular events, which was not mediated by dyslipidemia. Across multiple studies, dolutegravir has been associated with improved lipid profiles, but also with weight gain and neuropsychiatric adverse effects. While further study is needed, I recommend that providers counsel HIV-infected patients regarding known benefits as well as risks. Providers and patients should be encouraged to partner in shared decision-making regarding treatment. Dr. Cody Chastain from the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. Thank you for having me. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehivreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME-CE credit, available online to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, NPs, PAs, nurses, HIV specialists, OBGYNs, infectious disease physicians, and others involved in the care of patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Merck & Company Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.